Well, good morning to you all. Welcome to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church. My name is Duncan. I serve as pastor here, and it's my delight to welcome you here today. And you should be glad that it's me that's welcoming you here today, because I know what you need more than anything today. I do. I do. And the reason I say that so confidently is because I know myself. Um, This week there's been lots of times when I've been focused on myself, when I've been really concerned about things to do with me, when I've been all worked up about things that suit me or don't suit me, things that affect me things that are important to me, things that will have significant impact on the longer-term future of me. And I find myself so easily wrapped up in me. And I know that you are like me. And the Bible tells us that the best way for me to look after me and to have a healthy concern for me is to remember that I was made for God. And that's my message to you today. You were made to worship the living God, made to be preoccupied with who He is more than who you are. The prophet Isaiah had a dramatic experience of this. Let me read it to you from Isaiah chapter 6. He records this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. In order for Isaiah to be of any use to God as his prophet, he needed, first of all, a clear sight of who God is. And when he saw that, he had a clear sight of who he was and who the people around him were. We gather together on Sunday morning to be turned away from ourselves, to get a sight of who God is, because that is what you and I need more than anything today. Turn to our Bible reading now, and Fiona is going to come and read to us from Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and into chapter 2 as well. Thank you. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, 
starting at verse 12. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is twisted cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I thought to myself, look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow, the more knowledge, the more grief. I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. What does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing tree trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my heart, my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. Amen. Please do take a seat and I guess the question that hangs over everything is what are we doing here? Um, it's a question that I guess is often seen on the faces of people in church on a Sunday morning, and probably especially after a reading like the one we've just had, people think, what are we doing here? 
But that is actually the question that hangs over this passage of Scripture. The writer of Ecclesiastes wants us to ask the question, what are we doing here? Not about what we do on Sunday mornings, but about life in general. What are we doing here? And that's not a question that's quite so often asked. If we were interested to find an answer to that question, where would we go? Where would we search? Where is it to be found? There is an ambition among some in the world of physics to develop, or I suppose I mean to discover, a theory of everything. That is a single, all-encompassing theoretical framework that explains everything in the universe. That would surely be the gateway to having a sense of meaning, right? This book of the Bible is one that is concerned with just that sort of question, and you may find it helpful to have the passage in front of you. It's printed in the, in the handout if you, if you got one of those on the way in. Um, last time when we started into this book a couple of weeks ago, we, we saw how, how the, 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 the author of this book, who's called the preacher or the teacher, he tells us right from the start, his conclusion is that all is vanity. And vanity is one of his favorite words in this book. It means, the, the word vanity means vapor. You know, so he's saying his conclusion is everything about life is short-lived, it's impossible to grasp, and it is quickly forgotten. That's his conclusion. His great question in the book is in verse 3 of the first chapter, where he asks this, what does man or what does humanity gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? For all his hard work in life, what does a human being gain? And the answer he gives is nothing. He gains nothing. For all the effort we put into life, for all the struggle that life is, what do we have left over at the end? Nothing. And in that first part of the chapter, he showed us that in general terms. You know, he would say, he would say, look, I can prove this to you. The world keeps turning, doesn't it? It's never stopped turning. And generation after generation of human being has come and gone. And though it's as if the world hasn't even noticed. You know, the world just keeps on going and we are here today, gone tomorrow. Another generation rises and is gone. But that's a very general picture. And I think our instinct is to want to say, hang on a minute, that's, that's too general, that's too sweeping to say everything is meaningless, all is vanity. Surely it doesn't apply to everything. No, the preacher still has to prove his case in the specifics of life. And that's what we'll see him start to do today. And so you see the introduction to our passage in verse 12. The preacher, well, actually, we're standing in the shoes of King Solomon, king over Israel in Jerusalem. King Solomon, son of David, ruler over Israel, uh, the most prosperous of all of Israel's kings. And what we'll see as we work through this is why Solomon is the perfect person to lead this investigation for us, to search out meaning and purpose for life, because that's what he's doing, searching for meaning. When Solomon became king over Israel, he was granted the most remarkable encounter with God. God appeared and said, 
ask me for whatever you want to give you. And this was perhaps the wisest moment in Solomon's whole life because he asked God to give him wisdom. He said, give your servant a discerning heart so that I might govern your people. Here is the first reason why Solomon is the best guide for us on this subject through this experiment that he's going to lead us in, his unsurpassed wisdom. Verse 13, he applied his heart to seek and to search by wisdom all that is done under heaven. He wanted to seek out everything that went on in the earth. And the rest of chapter 1 is Solomon's first conclusion. He tells us meaning is not found in wisdom. Meaning is not found in wisdom. So here Solomon, he first of all brings the lens of wisdom to examine everything that is done under heaven. And just imagine, in his exalted position, he has a unique exposure to the world, a unique access to the world that isn't, isn't just available to, to anyone and everyone. And he tells us that he has seen all that is done under heaven. He's seen everything that goes on. And he has seen that the world is somehow bent out of shape. I guess as a, a Jew, as an Israelite, he would think back to the beginning, the Garden of Eden. Things weren't like that back then, and now things seem to have been bent out of shape. And the preacher, he doesn't polish it for us. He says what he's seen in this world is, still verse 13, it is an unhappy business, or it is a heavy burden that God has given to the children of man. God has given the children of man to be busy with a heavy burden. No matter where Solomon has gone or whom he has observed, this is the same. Life is an unhappy business. It exacts energy from human beings day after day after day, and there is no gain to show for it at the end. Solomon in verse 14 says he's seen it all, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. There's his favorite word again, vanity. It's empty. It's like a vapor. You may as well try and catch the wind. So he sees how pointless it is for human beings to expend their energy trying to make it otherwise, as if our life is going to be the exception. Trying to grasp the vapor, well, I can see that no one has ever been able to do that, but I'll do it trying to preserve the vapor for longer. No one else has managed to do it, but I'm going to do it. To try and make the vapor into something else that it isn't. No one else has managed to do it, but surely I can do it. No, Solomon says that is futile. Listen to me. I've seen everything. I've seen all sorts of people, all sorts of circumstances, and it's the same for all. God, who, has, who is over everything, has given the world to be this way. And so, verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. However frustrated you may be with this reality of life, Solomon says, whatever you do, don't waste your energy trying to make it into something that it cannot be. You cannot, you cannot change it back. It's like 
You know, one of the curses of 2022 is you no longer get plastic straws. Now, I realize that there are all sorts of environmental concerns that are more important than my frustrations. But paper straws, friends, the moment that it gets soft or the moment that a child in haste bends it, for all of your rearranging of the straw, for all of your, your complex maneuvering to pierce the foil with it, once it's soft, once it's bent, you ain't never getting it back. Just go and ask for a new one. Don't waste any more time on it. And Solomon says, trying to bend life back to what you think it should be, you will never do it. It's foolishness. It's like trying to count something that's not there. And it's wisdom that has allowed Solomon to have this kind of clarity on the world, as negative as it is. And so perhaps this raises our hopes. Well, Solomon, if wisdom has given you this much insight, then maybe it's in wisdom itself that gain can be found. Maybe wisdom is the answer to what we need. Solomon was aware in verse 16 that he was the wisest man who had ever sat on the throne of Jerusalem. His heart was a wealth of knowledge and experience. And again, he applies himself. So in verse 13, he applied himself to seek and search out all that's done under heaven. Verse 17, he applies his heart to know wisdom, to know madness and folly. He tells us that he pursued knowledge. He wanted to appreciate the value of wisdom more and more and more. He wanted to dive deep into knowledge and understanding. And to help him really appreciate what wisdom is, he also took a deep dive into foolishness. And did he find the meaning he was searching for? Well, he was to be frustrated. Look at the end of verse 17. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. He found that wisdom was good. Wisdom was really effective for revealing the reality of the world in which he lived. But wisdom in itself, it had no power to make life into more than a vapor. And in fact, he found that the deeper one dives into gaining knowledge and wisdom, then actually that vapor-like nature of life just becomes more and more clear, more and more undeniable. And hence his conclusion at the end of the chapter, in much wisdom is much vexation. He who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I think back to my early 20s. By then I had a little bit of education and felt confident enough in my opinion on anything and everything. I couldn't understand how there were so many people who were so much older than me that seemed to know so much less than me. It was bewildering. Now I stand before you in my early 40s. I know less than that boy did. I've learned a lot in the last 20 years and the thing that learning has taught me, as it does for all of us, I hope, is actually how little you know. The more you know, the more you know you don't know. And to grow in wisdom 
actually, there's a sense of grief about that. Because the more wisdom you gain, the more clearly you see yourself and you see the things that are hard to accept about yourself. You see things about life and about this world that we just wish weren't true, but it is the reality. And so often to be ignorant is blissful because for Solomon, pursuing knowledge simply confirmed to him that it is a harsh world, that life is hard, it is hard work, it is labor and toil, and at the end of it, you die. That's what was confirmed for him. It's vanity. It's here for a moment, and it vanishes without a trace, regardless of what you do with it. And so God has not shown us, and particularly Solomon sees this, doesn't he? God has not shown us that the solution to this problem, the solution to this bent out of shapeness that there is in the world is not going to be found in you or me. We don't have the resources to change that. We are all living well and truly under the sun. There's nowhere else for you to go. No, if God is going to restore this world, it will be by another means altogether. And praise be, we have more than the book of Ecclesiastes. Because God restores this world by Himself coming and dwelling under the sun, and doing so as one of us. When Adam and Eve sinned, the ground was cursed, and they were told that because of sin entering into their relationship with God, life would be wearisome toil, and we cannot change that. But God's Son has become one of Adam's sons and lived the life of wearisome toil and done so in perfect obedience to God. This is the great restoration project that God is doing This is the pathway to gain, not in what we can do, but in what God is doing. Because this curse that has come upon the ground and upon humanity is one that needs to be lifted if anything is going to change. And this isn't something we often speak about, but Jesus came to be a curse. We often speak of Jesus on the cross and his death on the cross, that he died there to take away our sins and how wonderful that is. But also there, he became a curse. He was cursed by God. He took our curse. He took this world's curse on himself so that he could lift it and remove it forever. This is the power of Jesus Christ in His death, that He can save not just a sinner. He can save a multitude of sinners. He can restore a fallen and a broken world. And this is the great future we look to when Jesus comes to usher in that, in all of its fullness, into a restored world where nobody needs to wrestle in vain to find gain, but they have everything for they have God's. And that's for you as well. Your sin, your curse, your cursedness before God all needs to be taken out of the way, and God has provided that way so that actually what is crooked will be made straight. And where there is nothing to be counted, there will be something. 
and it is God who will do it. When you come to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher's conclusion, the summing up of the whole matter is this. So then, fear God and obey his commandments. He understands that the only way through this life with any measure of wisdom, the only wisdom worth bringing to this life is to know God. In the midst of all of the vanity, to know God. Because it's only him who can and who has promised to change this world and to change us. So the wisest man who has ever lived has taught us that in the search for the meaning of life, it is not found in wisdom. We need to take note of that. Then you come into chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, and we're looking at the first 11 verses. He tells us that meaning is not found in pleasure. Meaning is not found in pleasure. Look at how the king goes about his search. Verse 1, I said to my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Further down in verse 10, you see something of how he's operating. Um, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. Well, I suppose if you're going to test something, you might as well test it thoroughly, right? And the purpose of his indulgence, you see in verse 3, He says, he does all this that I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Life is short. It will soon be gone. So what are we here for? What is is life to be lived for? So first of all, in this experiment with pleasure, he tells us that he tried things that would bring him pleasure through making his heart merry. I don't have another way of wording that to make his heart merry. So see in verse 2 how he mentions laughter. In verse 3, he tried to, to cheer his body with wine. I mean, there really is nothing new under the sun, as he says, as we saw him say earlier. There's nothing new here, is there? These pursuits that he tries out are the very pursuits that human beings have been giving themselves to in the, in the millennia since. And I think there's a real danger when we approach this part of Ecclesiastes. These things that he's going to describe in the main are themselves not the problem. His conclusion is never going to be, so don't you dare touch this or touch that or touch this. The problem is what we do with these things. Here, he's trying to find the meaning of life in what? Merriment? Laughter? wine. These are gifts from God to be enjoyed, not to be used in this kind of way. How often have you said to yourself, I could do with a good laugh? And it tells us, doesn't it, or or, or if you hear someone describing someone else saying, oh, this is even worse, isn't it? They they could really do with a laugh. (laughs) Um, It tells you something, doesn't it, about where that person is, but it tells you something about what we understand laughter does for us. It does affect our mood. There are studies that have shown that it has positive health qualities. Laughter is good for us, but it's limited, isn't it? 
And in fact, there's something tragic about someone who has to turn absolutely everything into some opportunity for a laugh. Because laughter cannot carry that kind of responsibility. It has its place in life, but on the day when you should be mourning, don't try and resort to laughter. Laughter is limited to these other parts of life. And I don't know what it says about our nation at this time, that there seems to be, I can't find any official figures, but there seems to be so many professional comedians. You know, you, go, you look on some of these celebrity panel shows and you think, who is that? Oh, of course, he's a comedian. Oh, of course, he's a comedian. So many comedians. We seem to feel like we need so much laughter. We're a nation saturating ourselves with laughter. It is a great escape. And don't get me wrong, the good comedians, the clever ones, I admire what they're able to do. But ultimately, in our search for meaning, is it there? Just being merry all the time? Solomon concludes, I said of laughter, verse 2, it is mad. What use is it? Then he mentions the merriment that comes from wine. He doesn't want to deny the joy that can be derived from all these pleasures. We're going to see that very clearly in verse 10 when we get there. But he sees here that drink is not a means to escaping the realities of this life under the sun. It is not going to change things. And the problem that occurs when someone tries to use alcohol as their means of gain, their means of purpose, the means of changing life, is that it becomes utterly ruinous. And as a nation in Scotland, we are proving that to the extreme. The most recent figures show that 1,200 1200 people died in 2020, where alcohol was the direct, never mind the indirect, the direct cause of death. There's a pandemic of alcohol escapism in our land. And Solomon says here, I've tried looking for pleasure and meaning in that place, and it's futile. It does not yield what you hope it will. So having shown us, uh, he, he shows us that meaning is not found in pleasure, he now wants to test work as meaning. And look at all of his wonderful efforts from verse 4 through to 6. I mean, what does he describe for us here? There are construction projects. Now, I mean, think about, if you know anything of your Bible history, Solomon was the guy who built the temple for God. So never mind the tent we were thinking about earlier. He built the temple made of marble lined with gold took many, many decades to complete. He built that. He speaks of his own great houses and vineyards, luxury buildings, legacy buildings. In verses 5 and 6, you've got these gardens and parks that he plants, and it seems from the language that's used there that it's as if Solomon, by his efforts, using all the wealth and power at his disposal, he's trying to build a new Eden as if maybe he can bring it together. So he builds gardens planted with fruit trees, and none of the fruit trees in Solomon's garden are forbidden. He's building something special. He builds pools of water to water these trees, just like God made the rivers to water the Garden of Eden. The forest of growing trees, you know, like his buildings, he's building something 
that will outlive him, something that will be a legacy for him. Maybe this is where true meaning is to be found. And you lob into that, he has the pursuit of possessions. Verses 7 and 8, what do they include? Well, he had people to bring him pleasure. He had people to bring him pleasure, male and female slaves. He was a man of status after all, people to do things for him. Male and female singers in verse 8, what a luxury to be able to immerse himself in the arts. Maybe that's where meaning is found. And many concubines. Concubine, a woman who lived with him but wasn't his wife. Many concubines. Solomon's well known for this. Uh, the Bible tells us he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. I guess this is his way of saying he had no shortage of sex. He describes it as the delight of the sons of men. It's interesting, isn't it, when we read of Solomon having so many women in his life that we do think it preposterous, don't we? How on earth, how on earth could he have a thousand women? Lots of men today have far more than that. Far more. Because in our day and age, free access to pornography means that thousands upon thousands of people are being offered to us as potential sexual partners. This is where using sex to find some gain leads to. You see, Solomon had the capacity to do this. He had the power, he had the access to have a thousand sexual partners. That's where it leads. Trying to find meaning in sex, it just burgeons till you get to this. And this is what is happening today. Typically, men controlling thousands of women. This is where using sex to find gain leads to. We feed it and feed it, and it proves unsatisfying and futile. And I should say, if that's you today, then there is good news. I've got good news for you. The Lord Jesus Christ really does change hearts. He really does change desires. And as hard as you might find that to believe right now, he can change this for you. Solomon had material wealth as well. Look at the livestock that he owned in verse 7, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. And you know, for an agricultural people, wealth was regularly marked out by how much livestock you possessed. And then there's the traditional favorites in verse 8 that we still love of gold and silver and the perks of being a king, which means you gather the treasure of kings and of provinces. And there's this beautiful summing up of, of, where he had, of what he had attained in verse 9, isn't there? He says, I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. This, my friend, is why Solomon is a man worth listening to. He tries everything to the fullest extent that a human being can. And he tells us that while doing all this, his wisdom was intact. He's able to bring wisdom to what he sees and experiences. He sees everything clearly for what it is. And the results are mixed. 
Look at verse 10. So he tells us this bit we've already read, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. He says there was pleasure. There was reward in all of these things. But the conclusion in verse 11 is devastating. And it's devastating for us because it rips out some of the foundation stones in our lives that we're using to search for meaning. Because he says this, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Boy, boy, these things brought pleasure, a genuine reward for all of his work in those areas. There is enjoyment in life, he tells us, and we're going to see that more and more through this book, but there's no profit beyond that. That's all they offer, pleasure in this life. These things did not live up to the ambitions that he had for them. And the reason why is really quite simple. Death. Death. You're going to hear me say this probably for 14 Sundays. The reason why is death. None of these wonderful pleasures or works could stop death from coming. Even if we use these gifts that God gives us well, they cannot change the vapor-like nature of life. Ecclesiastes wants us to appreciate the reality of death. He wants us to appreciate that life is short. And he wants to give us wisdom for what to do, therefore, with this short life. And what he so powerfully gets across to us is that we must not use the things God has given us to somehow overturn the reality of what it means to be a creature. That is the road to frustration, and that is the road to a wasted life. And so how many of us can relate to Solomon as he's presented to us here, trying to fix the vanity of life through our work? We're building something, we're achieving something, something that people will recognize and take note of and speak about for years to come. That's all great. But that's not where meaning in life is found. Because you're going to die. We might work hard to build the perfect family. That's where meaning is, surely. No. Because even that cannot stop the onward march of death which will mar your work at some point. What about the gathering of possessions? If only you knew how hard I had worked to get this or that or these or those, you would understand why, why it's so precious to me. But the life lived for accumulating stuff is missing true meaning and will find no gain. And in fact, there will be a growing discontentment because there's always more stuff to have always more things to achieve. And the reason that it will keep on doing that and never produce gain is because at the end of it all, you will die. And we'll see next week how upsetting that is for the preacher. This is a negative message the preacher brings. There's no denying that, is there? But it is an essential message. Because if we ever think that meaning, 
that gain, that ultimate purpose is found in ourselves and in what we can do, then we are in a tragic, tragic situation, more precarious than we perhaps realize. And I said already, Ecclesiastes isn't the only book in the Bible. God has more to say to us than just the words of the preacher. But these are words from God to us. And I think instinctively, as we slow down and reflect on these verses, words that we recognize to be true, when life is comfortable and predictable and easy, then we don't notice how vapor-like life is. But when the world has been through all that it's been through in the last two years, and who knows what's coming in the years to come, we get a chance to see it more clearly. Whatever you've been living for, that is not going to change it. Death is coming, and it sweeps away your life, and it sweeps away any memory of it eventually. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul could reflect on how before he was a Christian, he thought he had found the secret of finding gain in life. He was thoroughly religious. He was a law keeper. He had the right heritage. He was zealous. He was enthusiastic. His gaze was on himself. His confidence was in his own ability to do these things that would make his life worthwhile and approved by God at the end. But then he met Jesus, and Paul records for us how his perspective changed. He says this in Philippians 3, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The message of the Bible is you will never work your way up to having some kind of gain at the end of your life. You can't do it. It doesn't matter if you try and use religious observance to do it. It doesn't matter if you try and leave a legacy from your work to do it. If you try and build a great family to do it. Whatever it is, you will never build your way up to it. But there is gain for everyone who comes to Jesus Christ. You don't get to come to the end of your life and say, well, God, look at all I've done. Am I great? No, instead, God says, I will give you greatness, if I could put it that way. I will give you my son, and in him you will find gain. And when you find the gain that comes from him, you see everything else in its right place. And in comparison to him, well, Paul would say it's rubbish. The writer to the Ecclesiastes would say, that doesn't mean you have to throw it out. He would say, there's great joy to be had in all of these things. But make sure that your gain is in your relationship with God, not in the things that he gives you. We're all searching for meaning. And it's not until we come to Jesus Christ that we find it. Amen. 
Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for being with us. Uh, Do stay for tea and coffee. And if anyone would like to speak to me about anything that's been in the service today, I'll be available at the front here.